to Spookernatural. I'm Nate and I'm here with my co-host Lee. Hello. And this week we are on to part two of the exorcism of Robert Mannheim. When we left our hero he was doing things and things are going bad and there were two priests who <laughs> didn't know their ass from their elbow. I, I can't remember much of the story. I remember it was riveting though. Please do feel that. Oh yeah. He's really really selling it here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, last week, we left the Mannheims just as they'd started their journey to stay with family in St. Louis. I'm going to say St. Louis. I still don't know if it's St. Louis or not, but it's besides the point. Well, I actually looked that up at the end of the last recording. St. Louis oh, is in Kentucky. Oh, that would have Kentucky. been fucking useful. St. <laughs> <laughs> Louis is in Kentucky, and that is, I think, where... I oh, know Louisville. Oh, no, I'm still, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still confused. My research didn't help at all. Please proceed. It's in America. <laughs> <laughs> Narrow it down for you. It's on one <laughs> side of the Pacific. Who knows which? So Robbie's body had started to act like a Ouija board, if you remember, where the yes. family would ask questions and then scratches or welts would form on his body that shaped words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they told their Lutheran minister, the Reverend Luther Miles Schulz, he begged them not to go. He, you know, he implored Carl and Phyllis to take their child to a physician that was, as he phrased it, sympathetic to the case. He'd even lined somebody up, but they said, nope, we have to follow the Ouija board body. <laughs> Off to St. Louis we go. So the Mannheims arrived at their relative's home on March 7th and they were embraced by Uncle George, Aunt Catherine, and cousins Marty, Billy, and Elizabeth. Phyllis shared her concerns that she really still did believe that the recently deceased Harriet could be causing all the issues that they'd experienced. And they did this thing called an alphabetic medium. I don't quite understand, but I'll explain it to you, and then I'll get your thoughts on it. So they all gathered around a table mm-hmm. and they had a piece of paper that had the alphabet on. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a Ouija board, but didn't have yes, no, uh, goodbye shit on it. It was just letters. And then they were passing it between each other and the table would shake and I imagine nudge them to underline a letter. Okay. And they kept they kept passing it around until a message was clear. Now, in Bishop's, uh, one of the priests, well, the, the diary that Alan based his book on, uh, Bishop doesn't say what the message was, but to the family, it suggested that Harriet was the cause of the problems. But okay. that's more sketchy than a Ouija board, I think. Yeah, it's a really long-winded way of doing things Mm. and the amount of energy looking at it from you know being sympathetic to the spirits the amount of energy it must take to shake an entire fucking table rather than just moving a little triangle i know yeah it's it's dodgy dodgery do while the family were doing this robbie was sat in the corner of the kitchen just reading comic books just acting like his normal self but all of a sudden he started to scream out in pain phyllis ran to him he was like pouring at his chest, so she opened his shirt to find new scratches. It doesn't say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say uh, she opened his chest. I'm like, Jesus Christ! This is yeah, the end of the story. Right she busts open his chest cavity. <laughs> Sorry, I'll save you. <laughs> <laughs> no, she opens his shirt, and there are more scratches there. Again, Bishop doesn't say what uh, the message was. If there was one, this could okay. just be scratches this time. Okay. Soon after this, the children were sent up to bed for the evening while the grown-ups sat downstairs to discuss a plan. Um, their chat was very, very quickly disturbed by banging upstairs. Oh, yeah. Them they, and the cousins. Well, Robbie and Marty were, in fact, sharing a bed. Oh, God. So, <laughs> 
But as they got to the top of the stairs, they could see the mattress that they were on shaking violently. Um, And Phyllis said that when she got close to the boys, she could hear something that sounded like it was inside the mattress, like clawing its way out. Um, But she don't know if is that better or worse than incest. I don't know. I yeah. <laughs> I think I'd I think I'd rather have the demon. Yeah, me too. The demon's legal at least. I don't see any anti-demon laws these days. True. Although these like blood cousins or marriage cousins. Not that it's better either way. I'm just being like, if it's like... (laughs) Are you about to reveal that you're married to your cousin? (laughs) If it's distant cousins, then nobody ends up with fucking webbed toes and shit. But No, this this was... um, So Uncle George is Carl's brother. Oh, okay, that's straight up fucked. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yep. I can't even try to to, to justify (laughs) it. No, so we'll stick with the demon. Okay. (laughs) So Aunt Catherine, who was a practicing Catholic, really urged the family to seek assistance from the church. But Phyllis and Carl both said that they were really scarred by what happened with Hughes. Mm. Um, You know, Robbie wasn't fixed and a man almost lost his arm. That, to (laughs) me, doesn't scream, let's give it another go. Yeah. So the next day, Robbie seemed to be fine. And he, he kind of appeared that he was returning to be the the happy kid that he was before all of this started. Hmm. And because Phyllis and Carl wanted to take Robbie to the relatives to see if a change of scenery would help the situation, they started to believe that this was it. He just needed to get out of that house. It was clearly the house, not the boy, that was the issue. So everyone was congratulating each other, like, such a good idea, we can start to move on from here. However... (laughs) As soon as Phyllis started to talk about enrolling Robbie in his cousin's high school, it all kicked up again. Robbie started to scream. Phyllis ran to him, opened the shirt again to reveal a blood-soaked message on his skin that said, no school. Is Uh, that not the best way of getting out of school? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Oh, sorry, I can't go to school today. I'm possessed. That's like such a a weak... uh... I'll check with the demon. Uh, He says no. (laughs) He says, uh, fuck yourself. It wasn't his words, not mine. (laughs) So the next time that school was mentioned, the the word no appeared on both of his wrists. And after that, the parents didn't talk about it again because they didn't want to be contributing to the pain that their son was in. Did they did they not see what the, the demon thought to Disneyland or, <laughs> you know? Was, is it just the things that a child might not enjoy that the demon also happens to not enjoy? What was, like, the thing in the 50s? Like, you wouldn't be able to offer him an Xbox because... <laughs> no. A, a new yo-yo? Yeah, how do you feel about yo-yos? Yeah. That night, the mattress that Robbie and Marty shared began to shake again. And as their parents rushed into the room, they could hear scratches like coming from all of the walls. It sounded like there was that original sound that Carl heard, that rat noise. Mm. It was surrounding them entirely. Okay. And in the middle of the room, the mattress is going crazy. Robbie and Marty are completely still on the bed. It's like they've been frozen while the rest of the room is being shook by something. That's how love feels, you know, when you're locked, <laughs> you're locked in, nothing can come into this little cousin bubble. It feels like it's just us two against the world. <laughs> Meanwhile, a demon <laughs> burns the fucking house to the ground. Yeah, yeah well, you know, love hurts. It does. <laughs> Once again, Catherine begged Carl and Phyllis to seek assistance from the Catholic Church. And they were again, no, we don't believe that they would help. However, that didn't stop Elizabeth, who was enrolled at a local university, from going to find help at a university because it was a a Catholic university. Oh, good. So she went to her favourite teacher, who is Father Raymond Bishop, the diary that Alan's book's based on, was written by him. Can you be a priest if your surname is that of another, is a bishop a clergy member? I don't know what that is. No, bishop is within the Catholic Church. Yeah, so you, like can't be, you, can't be father, you can't be Father Bishop. But you could be Bishop Bishop. 
That's cool. Okay, no, I take it back. Let him work his way up. Arch, Archbishop Bishop. I like it. <laughs> so he was the head of the Department of Education. And Elizabeth described him as a good listener. He was devout, but not pious. They sat down and Elizabeth explained everything that had happened to the family in Maryland and everything that had happened since they'd arrived at their home. Mm-hmm. He listened carefully but he didn't want to immediately diagnose the situation. Mm-hmm. He wanted to go away and speak to his peers to see what they thought. But diabolical possession was one of the things that this conversation brought to mind. And he also didn't want to label it as a possession until he himself had assessed the boy. Okay. Because um, this could all be hearsay and it could be Robbie playing pranks. So Bishop sought advice from his friend, Father Lawrence Kenny. And he too suspected that it could be demonic activity, Mm -hmm. but he recommended that Bishop went to speak to the president of the university, uh, which is Father Paul Reinert. I think I pronounced that right. Might not be. Who knows? Reinert's initial feeling was that he didn't want Bishop to do anything that could embarrass the university or him. Mm, (laughs) He wanted to keep his reputation good amongst his peers, but agreed that they were duty bound to help this tormented family mm. uh, because, you know, as you said before, the the Lutheran faith and a lot of other branches of Christianity don't have the powers or the tools to rid people of demons. Mm-hmm. So Ryanette suggested that Bishop go to the house and give the family and the, the child a priestly breath blessing and this would allow him to assess the situation with his own eyes, and then he wouldn't be relying on hearsay before he made any decisions. So on March 9th, he travelled to the family home and discovered immediately that the parents were reluctant to trust the church to save their boy, as, you know, they'd already done this. This felt like a repeat of history. Mm. However, once they got talking, Carl and Phyllis immediately saw a difference between Hugh's who was a bit green behind the gills. I think that's how you say that. And Bishop. (laughs) um, (laughs) Hughes was overwhelmed while Bishop seemed to be able to draw on knowledge and experience, not necessarily experience of doing exorcisms firsthand, but he had clearly studied, whereas Hughes didn't possibly feel that the church should be doing this kind of stuff anymore and didn't really read the books on exorcism. So the priest spoke to Robbie and his parents. And while he was talking, he was looking for any inconsistencies that would suggest that this was a hoax. Mm-hmm. But the stories were consistent. He talked to them separately and he couldn't see any outward or explicit signs that they're you know, taking the piss. Yeah, okay. In his book, Alan noted that Bishop was trying to keep his interview unemotional and non-religious. It was an exercise in logic and reasoning, a search for facts. So he wasn't being preachy. Yeah. He was just being nosy. He was being being nosy, but objective. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Perhaps not too shocking is the fact that he was really disturbed by what he'd heard, Um, especially because it seemed like things were escalating and becoming more violent. Yeah. Like it wasn't just passive, you know, noises or things being moved in the house. The child was actually being injured. Mm. Um, So Bishop went around the house, blessed every room. He spoke in Latin as he went, made the sign of a cross. And he also sprinkled holy water that had been blessed in the name of St. Ignatius. Um, This particular saint, formed an order that believed that they were soldiers of Christ rather than just monks who like to sit around and contemplate. So spraying the holy water is considered to be a low-level exorcism against infestation, Mm -hmm. which is considered to be the most mild form of possession. Yeah. Um, According to Catholicism, places may be strained and influenced by a variety of causes and frequently by no more than one of the, a time, invested in, infested by ghosts, magicians dabbling in a cult, repeated sinful activities, 
place memories of sin or violence by, or by poltergeists. It's not necessarily demonic and it doesn't always require an exorcism, but it's good to do just in case. Yeah, okay. It's likely that Bishop had realised that Robbie had carried whatever was plaguing him from Maryland to St. Louis. Yeah. So he would have probably thought that whatever's happened has moved from infestation to obsession. The scratching and thumping noises in the house were the sign of infestation, whereas the marks on Robbie's actual skin are a sign of obsession. Okay, um, yeah. Because... because whatever it is is inside the body now as opposed to you know being external and just being a being a bother yeah okay and bishop you know he notes thankfully that he could find no obvious stages sorry no obvious signs of the final stage which is possession and at this point the demon is able to use the victim's eyes ears mouth to say you know to speak through him to see things that are going on around him, to listen to people's conversations. Okay. Um, and it keeps the person in a state of unconsciousness. Bishop had brought with him a sacred relic uh, and he put, placed it in a little cloth bag and pinned it to Robbie's headboard. And this was what they refer to as a second class relic meaning that it was touched by a saint as opposed to being of the saint. Because like a first class relic would be like a bone fragment from, I don't know, Mother Teresa. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas this, this had just been touched by Saint Margaret Mary. So the boy climbed into bed and the adults went downstairs to discuss what Bishop thought should happen next. They barely sat down like, you know, they'd come off the last step directing Bishop to the kitchen when they heard really loud bangs coming from upstairs. Mm-hmm. At this point, Robbie and Marty had stopped sharing rooms because it was upsetting Marty. <laughs> yeah. Robbie was screaming. So the adults ran upstairs. When they got to the top, they saw that the mattress was moving back and forward. And again, Robbie is in the middle completely still. Bishop makes a sign of the cross and the movement stopped immediately. But Robbie began to cry out in pain. He's screaming and he's like tearing at his own clothes. And as they're looking at his skin, zigzag scratches are appearing. Like somebody unseen is writing on him, but it's, you know, blood, (laughs) which is unfortunate. Uh, Robbie then seemed to slip into a sleep. So the adults left and went back downstairs, and Bishop said that he would help them. He made them a promise. He could see that this family were being tormented, but he himself didn't feel he was in the position to say what the best course of action was, and he felt like he needed to speak to his peers, maybe somebody who's more familiar with exorcisms. So the next day, which is March 9th, Bishop spoke to his friend, Father William Bowden, Uh, recounting everything he'd witnessed and everything that Elizabeth had told him in their conversation. Excuse me. During the night, the family had heard that mysterious scratching again, but this time they could hear marching feet, which, you know, (laughs) is... The rats are (laughs) organising. Yeah. I just feel like my mum would be sat down and be like, can you quiet down up there? It sounds like you've got a fucking marching band. (laughs) She wouldn't be running up the stairs <laughs> to defend me from no. Satan. The cloth bag that had contained the relic um, had become unpinned and its contents had been flung across the room. Elizabeth called Bishop in a panic and he told her he would come to the house with Bowden and try and help. So mm-hmm. Bowden brought two relics with him. One of them was a first class relic because it was a shard of bone from St. Francis Xavier. And the other one was like a hollowed out crucifix and he placed the bone shard inside the the hollowed out crucifix. They entered the house after 10 and headed straight to the child's room. No small talk with the family. Bowden asked the boy what had happened and he was trying to gently coax information out of him again to see if he could see any signs that this was a hoax, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't. He gave him another priestly blessing. (laughs) because they've really helped so far. Oh, yeah. 
And then they headed back downstairs to speak to everyone. Around 11 o'clock, the priests were getting ready to leave. But once again, Robbie started screaming. Everybody ran up to the stairs to see what was happening. He was sat up like, like, um, like he'd seized. He was so straight and tight and he wasn't moving. Mm-hmm. It kind of looked like he was sat against an invisible board. Okay. He was pale-faced. He was sweating profusely. As it, as he entered the room, Bowden said that he could feel a strange force, almost like a tension, like suddenly becoming overwhelmed or anxious. Cool. Bowden could see that the cloth pouch had been flung across the floor again. New scratches had appeared on Robbie's skin. Mm-hmm. And he said that it, it, the pain kind of felt like when you catch yourself on a thorn. Everything seemed to calm down. So they left the boy to rest, but they barely turned around when they heard a crash. And when they went back into the room, Robbie explained that he'd just closed his eyes to go to sleep and the bottle of holy water that Bowden had left on the dresser mm. had been like, thrown across the room and it landed on the hardwood floor, but it didn't break. Oh. Is where they get in their glass from. Or their hardwood. Yeah. So the two priests stood at the head of Robbie's bed, uh, one on one side and the other one on the other side, so that they were looking at each other. Um, they said the rosary while making signs of the cross over Robbie's head, which is very irritating. Yeah, when you're trying to sleep, you got two fucking <laughs> priests just whispering to each other and gesticulating. Yeah, I know, I know. Bowden removed his rosary beads and placed them around Robbie's neck. Fuck off, I am trying to Leave me alone (laughs) And he also placed that hollowed out crucifix With the other relic tucked inside Underneath uh, Robbie's pillow I assume this was Extra protections as well as The holy water and the priestly blessing Yeah, that one keeps the fucking tooth fairy away Yes This seemed to calm Robbie And he did settle into sleep So the priest left for the evening However just when everybody thought that the paranormal activity show was over for the evening, they heard something scraping across the hardwood floor. So Phyllis and Catherine ran up the stairs and they found that the doorway had been blocked by a bookcase. This is a pretty heavy bookcase. I don't Mm. think Robbie would have been able to move it on its own. But there was a gap between where the bookcase ended and the doorframe and Phyllis could kind of see around it and she could see that Robbie was sat on the bed. He was shaking, like, you know when you're terrified of something? Mm-hmm. Like how you get with a spider. Oh. <laughs> Although, off topic, you'll be very proud of me. Now, with spiders, as long as they're no bigger than, like, my pinky nail, I can, I can pick them up now. Oh, that's growth. Well done. That is growth. Thank you. That's improvement. Anything bigger than that is still shit, but, yeah. So Phyllis also noticed that stool that had been sat uh, in front of a dressing table had moved to the bottom of Robbie's bed like somebody had been sat there speaking to him. Okay. So she asked Catherine to help her move this bookcase and as soon as there was enough space for her to squeeze past, she ran to Robbie and held him tightly. She said that she felt this strange force as well, this this tension or anxiety that was hanging in the air. Mm-hmm. But she didn't want to leave Robbie alone. She decided that she was going to stay there and they would sleep in the same bed there's a lot of this going on in this family (laughs) it's fine we'll move past it uh so they'd settled in they'd fallen asleep but were woken by the stool being thrown across the floor and landing hard on its side robbie and phyllis felt the crucifix move from underneath the pillow and it was kind of tracing a line down robbie's back and it stopped at the foot of the bed which was fucking terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the mattress started to shake. Headboard was rattling against the wall. The bed was being pushed forward and slammed backwards. Phyllis did not hesitate. She grabbed Robbie and they went downstairs. At this point, everybody in the family, because Carl and Phyllis have shared their problems, <laughs> everyone's on the verge of hysteria. But Phyllis was more and more certain that this wasn't the work of a demon. It was Harriet trying to send messages from the other side, which 
did was Harriet a bitch in real life? Yeah, Harriet's got a <laughs> fucked up sense of humour. This is how she tries to communicate by etching messages into her nephew. Yeah, I've just turned your son into a net, just get Harry like that. Yeah, now watch me fucking shake him. <laughs> <laughs> so Phyllis got a pen and paper and she wrote down everything she could remember from Harriet's last days to see if there was any overlap, if there was any signs, maybe. I mean, I don't really understand her thinking, but, you know, she was hysterical. Harriet had been lingering between life and death for a few days, but on the 25th of January, she told her husband, John, her children, Danny, Mark and Alice, to just let her go. You all go to sleep and just let me leave peacefully. It's thought that um, she died somewhere between 2 a.m. and 2.30. So with this information, Phyllis is begging the family to buy her theory. She says, don't you see the mattress, the scratching? Listen, she knew what, when she was going to die and she's come back to tell us something. She's trying to reach us at the exact same time of morning she died because it was around 2, 2.30 in the morning at this point. Okay. Which is a stretch. A little bit, yeah. Uh, yeah. And if she... Surely that is the... Mo- like, as far as closure goes, that's about as good as it gets, that I am mm. going to die in my sleep, so you all go to bed... Let's all say what we need to, unless yeah. she's just come back to say, fuck, I left the oven on. There's not yeah. much of a, what else could she possibly have done? So the family, as a group, decided that they would try and contact Harriet again. Now, there were fragments of this in Bishop's diary because he wasn't there and they weren't entirely forthcoming with what happened. And I think that's because it didn't work. Ah. Um. Because they were doing the knock once for yes, knock two for no. Okay. Um, kind of medium ship, mediumism, whatever you like. Um, all the questions that Phyllis was asking seemed to be focused on this metal box that Harriet had supposedly hidden, which contained money for her family. Uh, and I thought maybe she was using this information to prove that the spirit was Harriet because only the spirit would know where it was hidden. Okay. It didn't make a hell of a lot of sense to me. No. I think Phyllis at this point is a woman at the end of her rope. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Once again, Elizabeth went to Bishop and told him exactly what happened. He and Bowden sat down and agreed that more than likely this was diabolical possession. But they wanted to gather more evidence before asking uh, permission to perform the exorcism. Now, you know, although that they believed it was possession, there was that small voice in both of their heads that was saying, Robbie still could be performing this. He did seem oddly calm while the chaos was coming around him and he seemed really detached and they both thought that this could be a sign that he was suffering from a mental illness mm. or that he might be on the verge of a breakdown. Okay. You know, he's had so many sleepless nights since January and there's only so many days you can go without sleep before you do start to have it impact your daily life. Yeah, at the very least hallucinate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Bishop and Bowden studied the old handbook, the Roman ritual, just like Hughes had done. And they sat down and made a checklist of uh, what this handbook says are the signs of diabolical possession. So as far as they knew, based on what they'd seen and what Elizabeth had explained to them, Robbie hadn't spoken in a strange tongue or languages he didn't know. He hadn't predicted the the future or shown any sign of extraordinary powers, like suddenly he's super strong and can, I don't know, lift his dad over his head. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, However, the detailed chronology that the family had been keeping um, showed the classic progression from infestation to possession. Mm -hmm. Um, the activity had moved from being um, a, what Alan describes as a poltergeist-like siege around Robbie to being his physical body being tormented and injured. Okay. And for them, there was hope. There was hope because he'd not yet been completely taken over by yeah. whatever this entity was. So at this point, it's still oppression as opposed to... Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. So they went to the uh, Archbishop of the Diocese, who's Archbishop Ritter, um, and they asked him to appoint an exorcist so the boy could be rescued. But Bowden and Bishop had done a lot of research and that had both led them to not want to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they sat and discussed what they believed were potential uh, candidates because they thought, okay, if we go to Ritter and we already have like a short list of people who we think would be good for the job, mm-hmm. then, you know, that is another way for them to not be appointed. However, the two men that they approached said, no, no thanks. Yeah. No good things. In Bishop's diary, he noted that Ritter openly admitted that his first thought was to deny permission. In his head, he had been working to modernise the Catholic Church and wanted people's perceptions to be that they were heading in a modern direction. And he thought any bad press or backlash from a failed exorcism could damage that reputation and, selfishly, his own reputation. He didn't want to become a laughingstock amongst his peers. But Ritter accepted that the mission of the church was to defeat evil and advance good. And if Robbie was truly afflicted by something, they were duty-bound to help him. But if the boy was actually mentally ill, an exorcism could have a really negative impact on him and could make him so much worse. But also, if he is just being a little arsehole, he'll also slap that shit out of him, won't it? So (laughs) you're going to go to school now, aren't you, bitch? (laughs) So Ritter struggled with the decision because he would potentially be asking a priest to risk their lives to save Robbie's soul. Yeah. But that was their job, right? I mean, yeah, I was, that's, yeah, that's kind of 101. Yeah, priest 101. Um, you know, that's that the, every priest's mission, I'm sure, is to save all of our souls, especially in Catholicism when you think uh, absolution's a thing, if you mm. confess... If you, you know, have your confession, then the priest helps cleanse your soul. Like they're very active <laughs> in that way. Yeah. But there was a risk because, you know, the Hughes incident had already happened and demonstrated what potentially could happen if the exorcist lost focus or concentration, even for a moment. You know, he could be injured by the child or by whatever was inside the child. According to the Roman ritual, a priest intending to perform an exorcism over persons tormented by the devil must be properly distinguished for his piety, prudence and integrity of life. Um, which, again, is that not what all priests are supposed to be? Did I miss mm. the memo? <laughs> I don't think it says fiddle kids and be pious. And yet they all do. Fuck bitches, get money. (laughs) So Archbishop Ritter gave his permission on two conditions. Bowden himself would be the person to perform the exorcism and he must never speak about it publicly. However, Ritter did encourage uh, Bowden to keep... um, a record, a diary of what happened that could be filed away in the archives and then called upon should any future exorcisms happen. And they needed to see how the modern 1950s priest <laughs> deals with it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bowden couldn't do this alone. Bishop was happy to come on board. You know, he brought the problem to Bowden's door, um, but he needed somebody else. So the day after they spoke to, to Ritter, Bowden sent a message to 26-year-old Walter Halloran. He was a student at St. Louis, Louis, Louis University. <laughs> <laughs> He'd also been a Jesuit for eight years, and Bowden was kind of like his role model. And he was used to running errands for him. He drove him around, uh, you know, to the shops or around the parish to, you know, go and give last rites to dying old people and whatnot. I don't really know what other errands priests do. <laughs> no. So at 9pm, Bowden and Bishop got into the back of the rectory car 
and they were discussing the plan. Now, Halloran says he wasn't listening to what was being discussed. He was the dutiful driver and was really concentrating on not crashing. And it wasn't until that they arrived at the house that Bowden turns around and says, so, yeah, we're doing an exorcism and uh, you might need to hold down a child. And so Halloran was like, what? (laughs) What? And in the diary, Bishop said that Halloran was noticeably stunned and added, if things got rough, well, Halloran had played some football and was an athlete in fine shape. Jesus Christ, how big is this fucking kid? I don't, I don't know. I was, I was thinking this today. I didn't get any taller after starting high school. So I was like, am I the same height as a 13-year-old? <laughs> But, you know, if the kid starts to show signs of extraordinary power, maybe Halloran would need to rugby tackle him or football tackle him. Yeah, tackle I guess. <laughs> so when they're, so the priest spoke to the family and encouraged them to ask questions, but they didn't really ask many. I suppose it's probably a very overwhelming experience to have two priests and a, a football player <laughs> Turn up your house. Yeah, it's a a strange setup to an even stranger joke, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the family stayed downstairs and that allowed Bowden an opportunity to go and speak to Robbie alone. He implored Robbie to examine his own conscience and make an act of contrition, so to to confess. Mm -hmm. He he listened intently, again, searching for any signs that this could be a hoax. Uh, but he found none, and he he really did believe in that moment that the exorcism was the best course of action. So he came downstairs, motioned to Bishop that it was time, it's game time, let's get ready. They changed into their surpluses, unfurled their purple stoles, kissing them gently before placing them on their necks. Strange, but okay. They donned their berettas, which I thought was a gun. Yeah, what the <laughs> fuck? reading this. Popping a hat. fucking nine mil. no. It's a hat. It's like a little oh. hat that has a little bubble on top. Like, um, oh, that's what they're called. Yeah, Beretta. So I, at first I was like, they brought a gun to a demon fight? What? Hell yeah. No, it was a hat. They went upstairs. Halloran was trailing behind them, probably thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? No, <laughs> he's, got, I he's, he's, to? he's trailing behind because he's got his pads on and he can't really walk <laughs> as comfortably. <No. laughs> it's got the helmet is really limiting his vision. <laughs> And as they were stood, like, going up the stairs, Bowden was going over in his head the 21 rules that were outlined in the Roman ritual about exorcism, and he was confident that he could stick to them. He was really confident in his own, maybe not ability, but his understanding of the process, Uh, which is what I think Hughes lacked. Like, Bowden was more, I suppose, read up on the subject. Yeah, Okay. So he knew he could not engage with the demon directly, make any sort of bargains, or digress into uh, what Alan describes as extemporaneous statements of his own. So drivel, like, yeah. you know, stick to the script. Yeah. Script in front of you. <laughs> when they walked into the room, he made the sign of the cross, sprinkled the old holy water, and he knelt at the head of the bed, and Bishop knelt at the head of the bed, but on the opposite side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Halloran didn't know what to do with himself. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> I d- how do I, where's the exit? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but Bowden got him to kneel at the foot of the bed. And Halloran says that from where he was, he could see uh, between the iron bars that were like the footboard. And he could see the kid, which was, must be surreal. <laughs> <laughs> the kids you like, don't know as well. Just yeah, who you've fucking, never met. Just some little weave there sweating as two priests screaming to each other. <laughs> yeah. It's not a situation that you'd want to be in, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so Bowden led everybody in prayer. Uh but you know, once the initial prayers had started had stopped, he started what is called the litany of saints. Um I won't go through the litany of saints because it's fucking long. Okay. But he says, Lord, have mercy on us. And Bishop and Halloran answered, Christ, have mercy on us. And there's a lot of that back and forth where Bowden would say something and that would elicit a response from the learned in the room. So Bishop Halloran and Aunt Catherine, because she was a practicing Catholic. 
Okay, so they're just hype men, essentially. The mattress started to move. It was thrashing up and down, and Halloran said it was like Robbie's mattress was on the sea. It was, like, moving as if it was somewhere else, but also there at the same time. Okay. Bowden kind of not ignored it. I suppose he was very aware of what was going on, but he was very focused in the words he was saying. But he could see that Halloran was like, nope, don't like this. Mm. <laughs> but Bowden just said to him, keep praying, keep praying. So in this litany of saints, he calls upon the saints, the archangels, the holy innocents and virgins, saintly widows, martyrs, holy priests, monks and hermits, founders of religious orders. It's kind of like he's summoning everybody to fight alongside him in this war. Monks and like, hermits? Yes, hermits. The patron saint of the school I went to was a famous hermit. I, okay. Saint Cuthbert. Hmm. So Bowden's voice became louder, stronger, and he, the family felt the tension rising in the room. The mattress continued to shake. At points, you would think that Robbie was about to be flung off it, but he was so still. Again, mm. like, he was there but not there at the same time. Yeah, okay. So the speech pattern changed now with the priests alternating. Uh, Bowden would say something, Bishop would say something. They slowed the rhythm right down and making sure that they pronounced every word precisely because they didn't want to fuck this up. Mm. When they finished, Bowden stood and moved close to the bed. And in Latin, he said, I command thee. But the boy screamed in response. The priest didn't waver. He continued, I command thee, unclean spirit, whosoever thou art, along with thine associates who have taken possession of this servant of God, that by the mysteries of the incarnation, passion, resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Robbie screamed again, though. And this time he threw back the covers and revealed that the skin on his stomach was covered in deep red welts. Like somebody had you know, taken the belt to him. Ah. Those kind of sores. But Bowden wasn't shaken. He continued. Robbie was starting to squirm underneath him and shriek. These welts and scratches were appearing all over his body. It was like something was trying to claw its way out of him. Blood was bubbling out of these scratches and they were appearing on his legs, his stomach, his back, his throat, his face. But Bowden demanded that the entity reveal its name and when it was planning on leaving. The word hell emerged on the skin on his chest. And this time there was enough blood on it to compel Bishop to dab at it with his hanky. Oh. Because it was, you know, it wasn't just these thorny scratches anymore. It's a gusher. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, why... <laughs> I didn't like that. <laughs> Don't know why that was my response. Sorry. So while Bishop was dabbing at his chest, he could see that something was coming through the skin on his abdomen and it the skin blackened and then it puckered like he'd been branded. So you know that kind of searing of skin that you get with um, burns? Like, yeah, okay. It was in the shape of an X. Um, now the two priests kind of discussed what this could mean. Uh, was it the Roman numeral, which meant 10? Could this mean that this is going to last 10 more days? The word go also appeared on his lower abdomen. Alan in the book describes it as one of the letters was nestled in his sparsely pubic area. And I was like, oh, that's not... That's strange. Why would you... What? I don't know. I don't know. But Bishop wondered whether the demon was signalling that he would uh, exit the body via urine or excrement. And apparently... This was a traditional exit, according to medieval accounts. Uh, Robbie's body started to relax, and he appeared to slip into a, a sleep, like a, a natural sleep as opposed to the fitful sleep he'd been getting recently. Mm -hmm. During this calm, Bishop went over to his body and started to count the number of marks that had appeared on him. But he said he lost count after 25, because there were some that were singular, there were some that were in groups, like uh, some like look like cigarette burns on the skin. Shit. Um, yeah, this kid was going through it. <laughs> the quiet didn't last though. Robbie's body arched off the bed at a really weird, like disjointed angle. Something that's not natural to the body. 
and he kind of twisted over and started to punch the headboard. Bowden immediately started praying again. He was like, not this shit again. Thought we'd sorted this out. And he was splashing holy water as he spoke. Uh, Robbie snapped out of his trance and told everybody that he'd had a dream where he was fighting a huge red slimy demon who was trying to stop him from escaping this pit that had a gate over it, um, which maybe that's his version of hell. Um, But he said that he'd felt a surge of strength and believed that he could beat the devil. So Bowden started to recite what is described as the most powerful exorcism prayer. I cast thee out, thou unclean spirit, along with the least encroachment of the wicked enemy and every phantom and diabolical legion. And as he did said this, he made the sign of the cross again over Bob, uh, Bobby. You know, it's a dog, over Robbie. <clears throat> but Robbie started to thrash again on the mattress, his limbs are flailing in all direction. Bowden traced the sign of the cross three times on his forehead. He's like, he opened his eyes all of a sudden, like, do you mean you're not expecting someone to open his eyes? Mm-hmm. Um, and he sat up and spat directly in Halloran's face. Ooh. But Halloran isn't stood close to him. Like, this spit went some distance because he's at the foot of the bed. Yeah, actually. Halloran's just there minding his own fucking business in his football This poor media. guy. This poor guy, like, you do a favour for somebody. Yeah. It's like when you agree to help somebody move house and then you're like, shit, why did I do this? Yeah, then you get spat in the face by a possessed <laughs> child. We've all been there. Uh, he snapped his head towards his family and spat directly in his uncle's face as well. Fucking hell. Uh, this, I suppose, performance provided him with um, the necessary distraction so that he could work his arm free. Um, you know, that's like a repeat of what happened with Hughes. Mm-hmm. He worked his arm free, uh, but this time he was caught. And then Halloran, his father and his uncle all came to hold him down. Now, this wasn't just like an hour. It continued well past midnight. Bowden kept going. His voice didn't falter at all. And in fact, the longer it went on, the louder and more authoritative his voice became. He started to gesticulate, kind of really underlying and punctuating what he's saying. Uh, in Bishop's diary, it says that his hand was knifing through the air as he spoke. Robbie's body was writhing and twisting. The sheets were soaked from sweat and from all the fucking holy water. And they were crumpled <laughs> underneath them. His skin was, you know, clammy, red, blotchy. There was marks on him, welts, scratches. Phyllis was desperately trying to suppress her cries. She didn't want that to add to Robbie's woes, I suppose. Mm. Bowden stopped sprinkling the holy water and started to pour it directly on Robbie's head, um, which seemed to bring him to. And Bowden believed that he it was easier to manage and he was calmer when he was awake. So he like slipped into this pattern of saying the prayer, pouring the water, saying the prayer, pouring the water. And it noted as well, this is fucking terrible. When the holy water didn't bring him round, the priest gently slapped his face. Like my night couldn't get any worse. I've been bitch slapped by a priest. (laughs) As Bowden finished the last prayer, which is I cast thee out, every unclean spirit, every phantom, every encroachment of Satan, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Robbie seemed to calm down and he slipped into, again, a natural sleep. Bowden returned to his knees and prayed silently before he got up. He was conscious that the kid needed rest. He'd been through a fucking lot that night and, you know, last two months, three months. He motioned for everyone to leave. He barely turned his back, though, when he heard what he described as a squeaky and loud voice sing way down the Swanee River far, far away. I don't know the song, do you? I I do not. I was hoping you could give us a little performance. I'll give it a go. Way down, <laughs> Swanee River. I bet it sounds sounds similar to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robbie was sat bolt upright again, swinging his arms. He was cackling and screeching. So Bowden got right back down on his knees and started to pray again. And this didn't stop until 7.30 a.m. When he fell into a natural sleep again. So 
they went home, they rested as well as they could. The next day, Bishop called the family and, you know, asked what had happened since they left. Philly said when he woke up, he seemed like his old self. He ate some food, even pestered people to play Monopoly with him. Which is really fucking annoying. Yeah, have you not caused us enough fucking trouble? We've not got five hours to sit and play Monopoly with you, you fucking nerd. <laughs> um, but they said around 9pm, he suddenly became drowsy. It was like a switch had been flipped. And he was almost falling asleep as Phyllis was trying to get, in, get him into his jammies. Kind of like li- really little kids do that, don't they? Mm. And, uh, um, and he was hardly in the sheets before they were seeing a repeat of the previous night's, you know, demonic action. In a panic, Phyllis called Bowden and told him the demon was still plaguing her child. At this point, Bowden reflected and thought, I really am in direct combat with Satan. My only, ri- my only weapons are my faith and the Roman ritual. Jesus. <laughs> and his beretta, don't forget, tucked into and the his beretta, And his beretta and his lovely purple scarf. <laughs> So he gathered up Halloran and Bishop again, told them what was happening, and also telling them that he didn't know how how long this was going to last. You know, contrary to what you see in the cinema, um, exorcisms aren't like a one-time deal. They can last weeks, months. It's a famous case. I think it was Ludon, where it went on for years. Yeah, we talked about that in the demonology episode. It's more of a, it's more like counselling than it is a quick yeah. sort of one-off treatment. Yeah. And this was, you know, starting to be revealed as something that wasn't going to be solved with a one-off uh, priestly blessing. <laughs> so the trio got to the house at around 9.30. Conversation was minimal. They dressed appropriately and headed up to battle evil once more. As soon as Bowden started his prayers, Robbie's body again started to just move at weird angles like do you have people who are double jointed mm, yeah okay. those kind of like contortions somebody who isn't double jointed would struggle to do mm-hmm. and again he spat in the faces of Halloran his father and his uncle he began screaming but to combat that Bowden just turned up the volume of his own so, and um he just kept saying his prayers over the shouting Robbie managed to grab Bowden's stole, which is the thing that goes around the neck, uh-huh. and he managed to tear it in two before being restrained again. It's made out of so silk, this... isn't it? Fucking hell. I know. It's expensive shit. And it's but... strong, is more my point. <laughs> the Vatican has money. They can replace it. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair point. <laughs> Phyllis went to her kid, you know, as a mother would. She started to mop his brow because he was sweating so profusely. And for her kindness, she received spit in the face. Bit of a one-trick pony, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Catherine pulled her away. She had her rosary beads and she started to recite the rosary, which is a Hail Mary, Mother of God, blah, 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 blah. Um, and she encouraged everybody else to join in. Robbie's body seemed to go through this cycle where he would thrash and flail and then calm and be still and then he would th- thrash and flail again around 1 30 a.m he seemed to have settled again and the priests and family went downstairs and Bowden was honest with them as well and said he didn't know whether this like when it would end or if it ever would mm-hmm. uh, which must be hard to hear gotcha because you've placed your trust in the church for the second time mm. and you think this is it this is going to fix fix him and it didn't yeah the holy men returned the next night around 7 30 um they observed robbie in the lead up to his bedtime to see if there were any signs of something that would come later mm-hmm. but he seemed normal he got into his jammies got into bed bishop and Bowden took their places at the head of the bed and began the prayers as soon as Bowden started to speak the words the mattress began to shake again Bowden responded by pouring holy water on the kid. I would be so... It's like waterboarding. Catholic waterboarding. (laughs) 
So he started to flail again and he ended up wrapping his body in the sheet. It's like when you, you sometimes you wake up and you are wrapped in the sheet in a way that you don't remember how you got there. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. And you struggle for a minute to get your legs out of it and to like uncocoon yourself. Yeah. Yeah. The way he uncocooned himself though is he tore the sheets. Oh shit! Which I think checks the box of extraordinary strength. Yeah, because uh, he's only a slight kid; he doesn't do sports. Um, but he tore himself free. Halloran moved to the at the head of the bed this time to better restrain the kid because, like he, Carl and George were really struggling to keep hold of him because of how he was contorting and twisting. Mm. In his diary. Bishop noted the contortions revealed physical strength beyond the natural power of R. R is Robbie. They don't refer to him by name. Okay. Um, This time when the holy water was being poured on him, he appeared to scream in pain as if when the droplets touched his skin, it was causing him physical discomfort. Hmm. His feet were moving rhythmically and it looked like he was either marching or tapping to a beat that nobody else could hear. He suddenly snapped back into consciousness and he scanned the room with like this confused look on his face. He didn't understand what was going on. And I think he had this momentary lapse of he didn't remember these people being here when he went to sleep. Yeah. But just as soon as he came out of this trance, he went back into it. And Bishop said he would fluctuate between these frenzied movements and then dead calmness for hours, like with the backdrop of these prayers that were just continuous. Around midnight, the men that were holding Robbie, which was his uncle, his dad, and Halloran, were absolutely exhausted from holding on to him. Mm-hmm. And all three of them relaxed their grip just for a second. But this meant that Robbie was free to jump up onto the bed and he sprang to the bed like when somebody is on a surfboard and they pop up. Yeah. And Bishop says that what he believed was happening was that Robbie began his strong fight for the eviction of the devil. His gyrations were in all directions. He pulled off the upper part of his underwear and held his arms high above himself in supplication. Then he made as though he were trying to vomit from his stomach. His gestures moved upwards, close to his body. He seemed to try to lift the devil from his stomach to his throat. As this was happening, Robbie asked for somebody to open the window. And as this cold air hits their faces, which was probably pleasant because I don't think the room smelled very nice. Mm. Robbie started to scream, he's going, there he goes. And then just like that, just like that, he collapsed back onto the bed. And it was like he was himself again. And he described it as a dark cloud being lifted. Joy erupted. Everybody thought, shit, yes, we've finally done it. We've finally done it. They were congratulating each other, hugging each other. The priests were, you know, embraced. Everyone was shaking hands. They left the home at around 1.30 a.m. <clears throat> when they got back to the rectory, they finally gave in to the exhaustion and just let themselves like flop onto their own beds, which if they're in a rectory, I don't imagine they're very comfortable. No, it was a cement slab. At 3.15am, the phone rang, piercing the silence in the rectory because everyone's asleep at that time. He was filled with despair because he already knew who was on the other end of that phone. And as he lifted the receiver, before he pressed it to his ear, he could hear Robbie screaming. And that's where we're going to leave it. Yes, this has ended up being three parts. I think we, I don't don't know if we did mention it at the start of the the show, but this is now part two of three. Um, So It's a juicy uh, story, and I think trying to cram it into two episodes doesn't give it the justice it deserves. Plus, there's like, um, there's the aftermath of the event, Mm. you know. Okay, we won't give any more away than that. That's no. No, we will not. We will restrain ourselves. I say ourselves, yourself, because I ain't got a fucking clue what happens next. Yeah, you um, you didn't you didn't read the book, bro. 
No, no, I have no fucking clue. Um, but thank you for listening, as always. If you enjoyed the episode, you want to tell us about it, please do give us five stars on any review place that you do the thing with the stars. Apple Podcasts, that is a thing as well. Give us the ratings. And if you want to get in touch with us, we are at SpookerPod on Instagram and the one with the bird and SpookerPod at Gmail. Com. If you search Spookernatural on Facebook, you will find us there. Humble apologies and respects to our boy RTD. And until next week, I think that'll do it. Bye.